Hello, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, home of NARC Troopers. If you like today's episode, visit me at narctroopers.com, where you'll find many resources to help you on your recovery journey. Today, we're going to talk about how you can't kill them if they're already dead. How to work through the anger after realizing that so much time was wasted on a person with narcissistic personality disorder. So first of all, let's start with Melissa. She says, for about two months after I was ruthlessly discarded, I drove around with an automatic weapon in the trunk of my car. I stalked him and made an elaborate foolproof plan to dispatch him to his maker. It was the only way I could ever have peace or justice or any closure. Thank God my plan went sideways and things happened that prevented me from following through. I would be in jail right now. So I'm glad that the universe intervened to stop me. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing that. And now from Julia. Julia says, I dreamed of hurting my husband and getting revenge after what he did to me for 13 years. The end was especially brutal. And the smear campaign, mm, the smear campaign was, well, it cost me my job and a few friends and family members. It was unforgivable, permanent damage. But I have three kids with my narcissist, so I had to think about them. If I harmed him, I'd probably get caught and maybe lose my children. Then he would truly win. I could not risk that happening. My children were the only reason that he's still walking and talking and breathing today. That was Julia. Let's hear from Brian. What does Brian say? He says, when she destroyed me and my whole life with such cruelty and and seemed to enjoy it all immensely, I had an irresistible urge to get even. She took everything, my home, money, friends, family, and dignity. The humiliation was tremendous. So I plotted ways to murder her. Some of the plans I hatched were quite good and made me happy to think about. But I am better than that. I have morals and ethics, and um, I have guilt and remorse. I'm capable of these things. I have empathy and compassion. I knew it was just a fantasy indulgence that I would never follow through with. But four years later, I still hope karma teaches her a lesson at some point and wipes that smirk right off her face. Do any of these stories sound familiar? I bet parts of this are things that resonate with most of you. I think that anyone who is human will want some kind of justice or revenge upon their disordered partner who destroys them in the end. It is a heartless, emotionless, cold-blooded ending that they give you every time. In most ways, It's as if they murder you and then dispose of any proof of it so that you just vanish without a trace as if you never, ever existed. 
There are countless articles and videos about how to get revenge on the narcissist. I see them all the time. Uh, you know, how, how do I um, destroy my narcissist? How do I uh, make him suffer? How do I, whatever, you know, you, you, you see that a lot. And the vast majority of these articles say that the best way to, is to maintain no contact, to just cut them out of your life entirely and permanently and just block everything and be grateful for the opportunity to reinvent yourself without the issues that kept you bound to them for so long. They say the best revenge is just to move on, forget about them and lead a good life. Heal yourself, grieve them, then go on to find wholeness and health. These are things that narcissists can never achieve. In an article from Psych Central titled, How Common is the Narcissistic Abuse in the United States? Sandra L. Brown, the founder of the Institute for Relational Harm Reduction and Public Pathology Education, she wrote an article titled, 60 million persons in the U.S. negatively affected by someone else's pathology. Good title, right? 60 million people are affected. I don't know how they get these numbers, but it's a research study, and this is the results. It says it this provides an estimate of the prevalence of this type of abuse, even if the numbers are off. And if I had to guess, I think it's kind of like COVID these days. There's a lot more cases out there that are being than are actually being reported. And so it's much higher, much more prevalent, a lot more of it going on. We just don't know. But in her article, Brown stated that about one in 25 people in the United States have some type of personality disorder, such as antisocial personality disorder, formerly known as sociopathy. Um, and it could be narcissism or psychopathy too. Brown estimated that the U.S. population uh, is about 34, 304 million people, 304 million. Uh, when divided by 25, that works out to over 12 million people who allegedly have some kind of personality disorder. So based on these numbers, Brown estimates that if each of these people had approximately five partners or close relationships throughout their lifetime, over 60 million people might be affected by a narcissistic psychopathic relationship of some kind, right? And I think five people that have been harmed by the narcissist is a very conservative number. I mean, it's true. Some of them stick around for quite a while maybe even decades, but they usually uh, manage to, to get around a little bit more um, so that I think five could be more than that, right? I think that's a conservative thing. It says apparently it's believed that the numbers are even higher since uh, most disordered individuals do not seek treatment and they fly under the radar. When you know them, experience them, and study them, you know that they are unwell and even dangerous, yet the majority of the world sees them as charismatic, charming people. Clearly, there is a perversion of the truth, which is quite far from reality. 
people fall prey to their harms uh, and charms every single day, right? Harms and charms. It's all part of the package. Their false facade is bulletproof and perfected so well that it could convince anybody, even your most trained, astute person who's really on their toes, uh, that could just fool anybody. So it goes without saying that many do not have a formal diagnosis and most who are dedicated to healing them will only end up, uh, you know, gutted and disposed of at some point in time because that's how it always ends unless you can get away first, which many of us are unable to do. The emotional landscape of the narcissist is dull, monochromatic, and one-dimensional. It is as blind as their disorder and as dead as they are. They may feel negative emotions like envy or rage or hurt, maybe humiliation or even occasionally, maybe a little bit of fear. Um, although they are known, one of the traits is that they do have a kind of fearlessness, probably because of their magical thinking and probably because parts of their brain do not function as a, as a neurotypical person's would. So these are the negative feelings that they marinate in. Um, there, you know, but there is something there except that, um, you know, these primal gut reactions that, that they have. Let me say this. Uh, I wanted to get, uh, um, this out there, there's different kinds of empathy. And I think um, the consensus is this, that disordered people who are your narcissists, psychopaths, uh, antisocials, uh, folks like that, they are capable of cognitive empathy, but they are not capable of emotional empathy. Um, and those, so you can't just say they have no empathy because they could have cognitive empathy, meaning many of them are very intelligent, very, very smart, and um, they're aware that some, they can see visibly that someone is experiencing some kind of emotion. They're sad, they're angry, they're upset, they're um, whatever. Obviously they can witness this and it registers in their mind, this person is having a meltdown and this person is, is experiencing grief. So cognitively, um, without any emotion involved whatsoever, they get it. They understand this person is feeling something that I'm not capable of feeling. It's foreign to me. I don't know what that's like. I can't relate to it. I've never experienced it. I don't know what it is, but I know what it's called and I can see that it's happening. That's cognitive empathy. Now, the emotional empathy is where when you see someone suffering, for example, it causes you to suffer. You feel their pain and it hurts you to see them hurt. This is the kind of, of uh, emotional empathy that human beings are supposed to have and it helps us to keep ourselves in check because we don't want to hurt other people because it would hurt us to hurt them because we can feel their pain. We can share it on an emotional um, level, um, right? 
So that's it, it helps uh, us monitor, regulate, and control ourselves. We're like, oh, you know, even if we're kind of a crappy person and we don't have much moral uh, conscience, we don't have much moral compass to tell us, nope, this is wrong, even if you don't have that, then the fail-safe, the thing that you fall back on, is you don't do the horrible thing because when you hurt other people, you do have emotional empathy and by hurting them, it's going to cause you to hurt as well because seeing them hurt is going to hurt you because you're human and you have that emotional empathy. So do you see the difference between cognitive empathy and uh, emotional empathy? Uh, the cluster B disordered people, they can have and usually do have cognitive empathy without any emotional connection, feeling, shared Oh, I get this. I know what this feels like. It's icky. It's making me feel icky. I'm so, so sorry. They don't have that. It's totally, totally absent. No emotional empathy. Um, and so I just want to make that clear because that's super important. Um, okay, so the emotional landscape of the narcissist, it's, it's a, it is quite different reality that, that they experience. They can have some negative emotions, but they don't really have um, very many positive um, emotions and certainly not that emotional connection to other people. Whatever it is that the narcissist experiences as emotions, they experience in reaction to narcissistic wounding and injuries real or imagined. You don't even have to really do anything to them. They perceive it as, as a slight, as a mistreatment, as a criticism, even though that is not what it actually was. It's just in their mind how they um, experience it. So they're, um, when they have any kind of emotional response to something, it's, it's about them that causes it. It's not about someone else. It's not about putting themselves in someone else's shoes. They can not do that ever. Never gonna ever be able to do that, to put themselves in someone else's shoes. They don't get it. They've never felt it. They've never experienced it. They haven't seen it. They haven't had that modeled to them. Maybe they, um, it's just absent in them. So it's just, um, you know, the emotions are all reactionary, right? it's reactionary to something perceived that is done to them. That's where the source of the root of their emotions come from, not from having feelings for other people that are genuine and connected. So, um, you know, this is not an optimal way to get through life, right? The causes of the narcissist dead core, we'll call it that his hollow dead core, are numerous, you know. Uh, first of all, there could be a genetic component that um, I don't think we can minimize that uh, piece of this puzzle, that that's part of it, that it runs in families, it's passed on through generations, maybe generational trauma. Um, you know, if you take a hard look at their family, you're, you're, you are sure to find other people have similar mental health issues and cluster B disorders. It's not usually just them. It's not an isolated uh, thing. You know, I think it's generational. It's cellular. Uh, it's passed along family lines. Uh, 
So that's one thing, the genetic component makes them that way. Secondly, and we're talking about their inability to have any kind of emotional empathy and the disorder itself that impairs them in significant ways so that they are not functioning as a normal person. And, you know, I want to put a little sidebar here and then I'll come back to the second thing that can cause it in addition to genetics. But I think these days there are people that get offended by saying, you know, we're neurodivergent and that's just another way to be like female, male and non-binary, right? It's just like another option that people have these days that, and, and they're like, we're neurodivergent. So we don't want to be vilified or condemned as being bad just because we're different because we're neurodivergent. And these people are missing a huge point. No one's making a value judgment on a person's worth on whether they're good or bad, but there is healthy and unhealthy. There is, um, you know, healthy functioning and wholeness and, and full range of emotions and, uh, full moral, um, construction in a person that exists. And then there's people who do not have these, they do, they do not possess these things. And as a result of not possessing these things, it's not a better or worse, you're good or bad. It's that you are, are not a functioning whole healthy individual who can experience life or relationships in your life in a healthy, whole, and safe way, that you are going to ultimately cause pain and harm to anyone that, that you try to get close to. If you are a cluster B person, that is, whether you like it or not, that is a fact, and that should come with some cautionary warning label or something, like I am a dangerous person to other people's mental health because I am disordered, I am mentally unwell, I have these things wrong with me. I don't experience life as everyone else. I do not have emotions and feelings. I cannot be intimate. I cannot love. I don't understand morals. I don't feel emotions like empathy. I don't feel guilt or remorse or regret. I don't have memories of the past the way other people do. I don't remember the people who are gone from my life. It's like they don't exist anymore. They have been warehoused like uh, a cadaver in a, in like in the morgue or something. There is like, they don't exist. They're not real. They're just like a, a picture that has been filed away. So that's what I want to say to the people who have at sometimes questioned that I'm making a judgment against people who have this narcissistic disorder or that are psychopathic or sociopathic uh, disordered in that way, that I am vilifying them and saying they're evil or something. I, I am not. I am saying they are unwell. They are damaged. They are um, missing key critical pieces of their humanity that make them uh, a functioning whole human and they are incapable of having uh, a long-term healthy relationship. And that's a fact and you don't have to accept it or like it or whatever, but that is a fact. 
that the people who have this, they're incapable of change. I do not see anyone ever saying, yes, I used to have this personality disorder. I used to be a psychopath. I used to be a narcissistic psychopath, but now I'm healed. Those people don't exist, right? I think we need to know that. They, they don't exist. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that while it popped into my head. And now I'm going to go back to my point that I'm trying to make. So how do they, how did they become so impaired, right? Obviously everyone has some narcissistic tendencies. I do. When I look in the mirror, I'm very critical about what I see and I want to have a body image that looks a certain way to have my definition of beauty uh, validated. And, and so I'm narcissistic. Like I, I'm looking for wrinkles and gray hairs or whatever. Um, and I feel good about my achievements, maybe sometimes a little too much or whatever. We're not talking about that kind of the narcissistic traits that we all have that are not pathological, toxic, malignant, dangerous, uh, and, and causing such an impediment to functioning in a real life kind of way that you can't be, um, like a real person that's, that's, that is capable of having real relationships or functioning through your life in, in ways that, um, are okay. We just, that's, that's not going to happen. So we're talking about those, those people, they have genetic predispositions. Remember generational pulling you back to what I was saying before generational cellular, um, passed along family lines and it runs in families. But here's another way that people who are on the deep end of the spectrum, and it is a spectral disorder like autism and other things, um, even anxiety could be, uh, you know, you could have anxiety light or the crippling can't breathe, going to have a heart attack kind of anxiety that sends you to the ER. Um, there's different kinds, different, it's on a spectrum. So if you're on the end of the spectrum where it has become uh, an illness, it has become uh, a pathology. That's what I'm talking about here. For those folks, I believe part of it is genetic. And then part of it is environment, environmental maybe, and circumstances. This would be traumatic childhoods with perhaps a mother who was unavailable, abusive, impaired. Maybe she herself was a narcissist. Who knows what's wrong with her, but she's classically what um, I believe Jung, Carl Jung called the dead mother. I may have that wrong. I don't have it in front of me. I would have to fact check that one. <laughs> but somebody who knows their business, who's done, devoted their whole life and is like an esteemed psychologist, coined that term dead mother to describe the mother that was not there to do the things that needed to be done in the developmental phases that needed to happen to create a healthy individual. It just didn't happen. So part of this could be in addition to the whole generational genetic component, um, it could be environment or circumstance. Absolutely. That contributed to this. Um, it has a profound and lasting effect on children. Uh, how, you know, their formative development stages through infancy, infancy through about age six, if there's something that goes off the rails there, it follows them forever. Um, you know, there's something that could have happened to 
some of us who are vulnerable and susceptible to these kinds of relationships, there's something that could have happened to us that programmed us, hardwired us in a way to make us susceptible to um, these kinds of relationships. Anyway, the abject horror of it all, you know, this, this childhood gone wrong, it interrupts normal development and they have to silence the suffering and the shame. And the only way to do this is to extinguish their own light, their own inner self, their own ego, their own authentic self, and to replace it with a fantastical version that is false and grandiose and a superhero, supernatural, uh, impervious to any hurt. It's, it is a coping mechanism. It is a survival skill that they develop this false facade or persona that all narcissists and psychopaths have. Um, you know, as a survival strategy, um, it is a trauma response, an adaptation, and it's really sort of like suicide. What happened to them, to the narcissist? Um, so what genetics began, their environment and all the abuse and whatnot, uh, at the hands of their uh, of their family, specifically mother is the most important. It finishes the job, and a narcissist is born. It is nature and nurture, not one or the other, that creates a uh, hollowed out, empty, anesthetized, dead version of themselves. You know, maybe the abuse happens first. And then the genetics kick in and do the rest. Either way, chicken or the egg, uh, it's this combination, I think, that makes the outcome fairly certain. Uh, you know, they have to die so they can live. Right? They have to die so they can live. <coughs> so, you can expect to feel enormous anger at some point through recovery from a relationship with someone like this. You know, it's a normal stage that you have to pass through to get to the other side. It is important to allow yourself to feel your feelings. <coughs> oh, sorry, I don't know what's happening to me. Um, <coughs> allergies, maybe. Um, they may be unpleasant feelings that you're going to feel, but you have to feel them not repress them or deny them, but experience them fully and let them pass through you and then release them. If you repress or suppress, push them down or project them on other people or transfer them onto someone else, that's not healthy. And it can impede your progress in recovery. So we do not want to act upon our anger. Anger is a healthy emotion. It's natural. And so we should feel angry when we are angry and learn how to deal with it in healthy ways. We do not want to harm ourselves or other people. And I will even take that a step further. You know, we are compassionate, empathetic humans in our heart of hearts. And beneath our hurt and anger, we understand things like grace and mercy and we feel them deeply. How could anyone 
who has the, that full range that's working, you know, of emotions, how could we want to see someone harmed uh, to get revenge on someone who is mentally impaired, cognitively compromised, even brain damaged, uh, developmentally challenged, and a victim of trauma? I'm talking about the narcissist. You know, if you think about what they are, what it must be like to be so empty inside and in constant need of filling up that dark space with fuel and supply, then, then it would make it impossible, or at least difficult, to wish any more harm upon this person than what they have already suffered. I know that that's hard to hear. doesn't seem fair, but it's the reality of the situation. Um, you know, it would feel really good to have closure and more importantly to have justice to somehow right the wrongs that have been committed against us and even a score, you know, enforce some karmic balance, restore order to the universe. I get it. I get it. But how can we do the harm to someone or how can we even think about this? How can we kill someone who's already dead? How can we, you can't kill someone who's already dead and to extract that kind of vengeance and retribution for their sins against us and everyone else they may encounter, that would render us just like them, right? No better than, than them. You know, I think their punishment is to know on a deep level that there is something wrong with them. And uh, I think that, that that can ameliorate their emptiness by chasing new sources of fuel and you know it never works out the way they hope it will eventually you know they're going to cycle through these stages of narcissistic relationships and they're all going to burn up the same way and they're going to have to just keep moving and going and doing it again and again and again and again we don't have to harm them they're already they're already hurt beyond repair. So um, that's it for today. Um, you know, I, in I published an article on Medium called You Can't Kill Them If They're Already Dead. Uh, hence, you know, same title of this podcast because I use the articles that I write one new piece of content every single week for the last three and a half years. Um, but when I, write, when I wrote that article and, and put it out, that's, that's what I use to do these podcasts. I use that um, as um, a springboard, sort of, to launch these podcasts. I got a couple of people's responses that said, we, you know, so what if, what if they're injured or trauma victims? So what if, if they were abused? You know, it doesn't make it right what they did. They need to be taught a lesson. They need to be stopped. They need, we need justice. There needs to be justice in the world. And like if somebody, you know, went in and mass murdered a hundred people somewhere, I'm sure he's got a story about how his life was horrible and somebody was mean to him. That doesn't excuse the, the mass, um, you know, harm that they cause. And so I read a couple of responses like that, and, and sure, there's definitely something there to be said, 
but I just want you to take this away and think about it a little bit. Those of you that are still um, consumed with anger and all of that, I want you to think about um, what kind of person you are. Because really at this point it's about you, not about them. They're, you know, they are what they are and they're gone. And hopefully, hopefully you're not still in it with them. Uh, they're gone and you're processing that and making peace with it and learning to accept it and to whatever. And I wouldn't go so far to say, oh my gosh, we must forgive them and love them and whatever. You know, that's like forgiving and loving someone who murdered your whole family. Uh, and there's people who do that. You've heard about that. You've heard those stories on the news. Like this person came in and murdered everybody in my house and I don't want them to have the death penalty. I, I forgive them and I pray for them every day and, and that kind of thing. And I've always heard those stories and thought, wow, you're a better person than me because I would want to extract my justice. And, um, you know, I'm a prayerful person and a Christian person, but I don't know if I would have that in me to just be that forgiving and loving and, and altruistic, I guess would be the word. I don't know if I could do that. And so just this is something to think about. I think when we carry anger with us, um, it's kind of like a poison and it eats at us. And it's like an acid that just gradually erodes us. And at some point, we need to come to terms with that uh, sometimes just crazy compulsive desire to get justice or revenge. Um, and I think the way to best frame this in a way that's going to create the most ripe and fertile soil for justice to actually happen here is to just name that this is a very um, sick person. He may be, or she may be, um, dangerous to others and toxic and all of that. But beyond that, they are sick and they are injured and they are damaged. And, uh, so yeah, where, you know, people plead insanity to get out of having death penalties and things like that. It's, it's an actual, um, legit argument in court. And if anybody could plead insanity, I guarantee you it's the narcissist, the psychopath, and the sociopath. There's definitely some insanity going on there, right, guys? And the longer we stay with them, the crazier we get. So let's be happy that we're out of that. And let's seriously think about uh, what I've shared with you here and what that says about us and who we want to be and how we're setting examples to our our children, our families, our friends, the people that are watching what we do and how we're responding to this. What what do we want to show about what kind of people we are in response to what they did to us? I guess that's the bottom line. Okay, that's it for today. I uh, am trapped in my house because it's raining. I'm in the Bay Area. And for the months of December and January, we have had just tons of rain and floods and sinkholes and mudslides and rock slides. And yeah, you know, 
18 deaths and stuff like that so it's too horrible to go do anything outside but I am going to make a quick run uh, to get myself something to eat right now <laughs> so let's be good to ourselves and go um, um, have something yummy and um, make a cup of hot yumminess hot tea anybody uh, hot chocolate I have a great recipe where I don't use sugar it's just cocoa powder and some kind of milk and maybe a packet or two of stevia you ought to try it it's really uh, zero sugar zero guilt and it tastes just as good as whatever you would get uh, that's got a thousand grams of sugar in it kind of hot chocolate yeah okay I'm gonna go now um, I hope all of you are um, feeling like you can do this and that you're one step closer today to owning your life and to recovering reinventing reimagining and rebirthing yourself into a new and better life I hope that you're um, feeling good about that okay much love bye